Uh, 1 Peter 5 is where we're going to be. My, um, <laughs> Every time I've read this passage, there is something else that I uh, want to emphasize. So every time I've read this passage, whatever it is that I'm about to say has changed. Every time. So um, if you want a different version of this message, you could go home on Facebook and watch the Facebook message, because it's going to be completely different than this. And I bet you second service is going to be completely different than this one as well. Because as I read this, for whatever reason, God just keeps captivating my attention with some of the things that he's saying here. Um, and so what I, what I want to ask you um, is to pray for me as we do this, um, for, for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is <laughs> I, I need God to open my eyes in ways to his great grace before I can accurately explain it to you this morning. Uh, a fella posted this this morning, sorry I was looking for it while I was talking there, but says, thanks to all of you who are ministering the word and sacraments this morning, serving the worship of God. Don't worry about having your A game, being emotionally flat, or being conflicted on the inside. Just give us the gospel. Show us Jesus. Be thirsty and needy with the rest of us. I am thirsty and more needy than any of you this morning. I just feel that weight in my heart and in my soul. I said to a couple times this morning, I'm praying that this is a holy dissatisfaction in my soul. Um, I'm praying the Holy Spirit will be faithful, because he is, to point out where I need to repent of some things. And I am praying that I will get as jazzed about this as I hope you will, as we consider how Peter ends his book to these people he loves. Beginning in verse 6, he says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anybody he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the, the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, establish you, strengthen you, support you after you have suffered for a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Savannah, I, I faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, talking about the Roman church, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Jesus Christ. I am not conflicted over the kissing one another with a kiss of love. Keep your lips to yourself, amen? I don't need your death cookies. <clears throat> that was free, sorry. Had nothing to do with grace. <laughs> the, the end of, of verse 12 there, when Peter says, this is why I wrote to you, to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it. 
What Peter is saying to these people is I want to encourage you that no matter what Satan says, God cares for you. I mean, he's writing to these people who's going through trials, difficulties, hardships, suffering. We've talked about this, right? There's what, what kinds. I mean, they're, they're going through, through, through persecutions and slander, uh, unfair treatment, uh, evil insults, all of these different things. And it's happening in their community where they live. It's happening in their workplaces. It's happening in their homes with their spouses. So, so rest assured, folks, no matter how difficult you are finding life, your difficulty will be different than somebody else's in here. But that doesn't make it any less difficult. It doesn't need to be the exact same. We all have these difficulties, and they're just as real, no matter how different they may be. And Peter has spent his time in this book telling them, listen, there's no difficulty that's been wasted. That there's, no, there's no difficulty that came as a result of a, a mistake because God fell asleep at the wheel. There's no, God cares for you. All of these difficulties, all of these trials, all of these heartaches, all of these hardships come through his very capable hands. Let, let me, let's start in chapter one. Turn to chapter one with me. Let's kind of run through a few of them, right? Chapter one, starting in verse, verse six, he says, you may uh, experience grief for a short time. And in that short time of grief leads to, at the end of verse seven, it may result in the praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your short grief is not wasted. It will lead to praise, glory, and honor when we see Jesus face to face. Chapter 2, verse 12, says they're being slandered. He says it doesn't matter the slander, verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably so that when they do slander you, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. That difficulty of slander, as somebody's assassinating your character, he says it doesn't matter, you still work and live and, and do what is right, and what will happen ultimately is God will get the glory. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, in the middle of difficult civil authority situations, you silence the ignorance of foolish people, not by your witty response, but by doing good. Verse 18, you may suffer unjustly, but if you endure it, it brings favor with God. Verse 20. Chapter 3, the first six verses. Wives, you may live <clears throat> with an incredibly frustrating husband. But if you live a life with a quiet and gentle spirit, I don't have time to re-preach the message, it's not offensive. Go back and listen to it online, please. Okay, it doesn't mean you don't get to talk. It's the picture of respect. And a wife who lives like that, even with the most foolish of husbands, is worth, the end of verse 4, great worth in God's sight. Chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, doing the necessary work of living in understanding with your wife, no matter how difficult she may be, leads to a prayer life that will not be hindered. Verse 9, though insults can pile up against you, you return by giving a blessing to those persons who are insulting you. God will bring a blessing to you. Chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 13. Rejoice. 
as you share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, you may also then rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. See, all these difficulties, all these hard times, all these frustrations in life are in God's hands and they have a purpose. Why? Because he cares for you. That's what he says in chapter 5, verse 7, casting all your cares on him because he does in fact care for you. No matter what the devil tries to get you to believe. Okay, let, let's take for a moment here. He says it, uh, be sober-minded, alert your adversary. The devil's prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anybody he can devour. So, so let's talk for a moment. So, so who is the devil? The devil, throughout scripture, is called God's adversary. He has rebelled against God. His desire is to overthrow God. And if he can't overthrow God, which, just in case you're wondering, he can't. He's going to wipe out all of God's people that he can. The devil is constantly actively, continuously hostile towards God's people. Uh, Peter was the object of Jesus' teaching, Luke chapter 22. He, 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 um, uh, Jesus said to Peter, he actually said Simon, Simon, which is Peter, um, uh, the, the, the Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Now a lot of people are like, see, Satan's going after Peter. Well, no, actually, that you, his desire is to sift you like wheat is actually plural. It's second person plural, not first person plural, or first person singular. Second person singular, never mind, didn't even try grammar. Not second person singular, there you go, second person plural, got it. It's you all. Satan's desire is to sift you all like wheat. What does that mean? mean, Satan's desire is to shake you violently to separate you from Jesus. Revelation 12 tells us that Satan stands before God making daily accusations against God's people. But here, I think it's really important we understand here, I don't think we understand this picture that Peter is painting for us here. He talks about Satan being a roaring lion. Please understand, he's not trying to sneak up on you. Why does a a lion roar? To intimidate. To declare his presumed authority. paralyze you. A lion doesn't roar when it hunts. A lion is like a cat who is sneaking beneath the bushes and the grass as low as he can, prowling around looking for that one that he can suddenly pounce upon. Or, or a lion will hunt by just sheer mass um, attack. It'll just come running right at the weakest one corner and take it down. But it doesn't roar when it hunts. It roars to throw you off balance make you nervous. See, Satan's roars sound a lot like this. Did God really say you would die if you ate of that fruit? You know, God just doesn't want you to be like him. That's why he doesn't want you to eat that fruit. Genesis 3. Satan's roar sounds like a lot like Job's wife. In Job chapter 2, after Job had lost all of his property, all of his possessions, all of his children. Now he has lost his health. And he's crying out to God in agony for, for an explanation. And Job's wife comes to him and says, you're going to still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. The devil's roar sounds a lot like 
<laughs> oh, of course you have that thorn in your flesh, man. You're a chump. I mean, you're a fine missionary and all, but if you didn't have that thorn, you'd be like a super missionary. The devil's roar sounds like, if God really cared for you, you wouldn't be suffering. The devil's roar sounds like, wow, have you looked at everybody else? They have it all together. God must really like them. Obviously, he doesn't like you. I mean, look at their kids. Their kids are great. Look at their life. It's like an Instagram account. They don't struggle. They don't fall. But you, you're a failure. Doesn't that get old? Doesn't it just get exhausting? What Peter says here is, don't fall for it. Bathe in humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you at the proper time. And the very first way you bathe in his humility is that you are reminded that you are not the only one. Doesn't it feel like I'm the only one who suffers like this? I'm the only one who can't afford my bills. I'm the only one whose kids do this. I'm the only one whose husband does this or whose wife does. I'm the only one. And what Peter says here at the very end of verse 9, knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world, you're not the only one. There are people around this world whose name you don't even know. Who in God's eyes are like the heroes of faith from Hebrews chapter 11. They may not be closing the mouths of lions. They may be running away from lions. But God's not ashamed to be called their God. You're not the only one. The other way we must humble ourselves is remember that God cares for us. Casting all your cares on him then. Because God, in fact, does care for you, you must be willing to, to throw your cares on him. Cast your worries on him. Literally put the responsibility on him. In the middle of this, this context that Peter's writing about great difficulty, humility looks like refusing to give yourself over to, to, to worry about the current difficulty. Refusing to yield to chronic worry and obsessing over the what-ifs of life. Because when we, we hold those worries, those concerns, in our own hands, instead of giving them to him, instead of casting them on him, when we, when we act, when we think, when we feel when we sound like we're responsible for the outcomes of all of these things that are happening in our life, that's pride. We, 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 we think we have thought of the one thing that God hasn't thought of, so all of this is going to fall apart. That's pride. When we live like right now matters most, more than everything else in the history of mankind, that's pride. We don't think God can handle it. So we're going to figure this out on our own. And that, that sounds an awful lot like why King Saul lost his kingdom. 1 Samuel chapter 10, uh, the, the prophet uh, um, Samuel went to Saul and said, what I want you to do is a couple of things here, but one of them was go to Gilgal and I want you to wait there for seven days. Then I will come and I will bring the burnt offering and the thanksgiving offering and we will do that for you. 
Saul goes about his business. He gets to Gilgal. The Philistine army is just ramping up around him. They're getting ready to attack. His men are like dripping away like water out of a bathtub. And they're hiding in coves, in caves, behind rocks, in trees. They're, they're crossing over the river to get away from the Philistine army so they're not overthrown. And, 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 and it's the seventh day. It's the seventh day. So 1 Samuel 13 tells us that as Saul looked at those things, the Philistine army coming, his men running, looking at his watch like it's the seventh day, it's the seventh day, he calls for the, the sacrifices and he brings the, the sacrifices himself, the offerings himself, and upon completion, which seems to be a pattern in Saul's life, upon completion of bringing that sacrifice, Samuel shows up. And when Saul rushes to meet Samuel, Samuel's first words to him are like a mom coming home from grocery shopping to a crying kid. What have you done? And Saul's response is very arrogant. Well, the Philistines were coming. My men were leaving. It's the seventh day. You hadn't shown up yet. And I wasn't about to go into this battle without God's protection. So I forced myself, those are the literal words, I forced myself to give the sacrifice. Forgetting that the seventh day wasn't over yet. Aren't we a lot like Saul? We haven't seen the completion of God's promise yet. But right now matters more than anything else. What Saul did is he let the, the noise of difficulty drown out the sound of God's sure promise. Don't we do that? Yeah, don't rely on your own understanding in difficult times. Be humble. Be confident in God's care for you. Catch this next part. Even though you may have failed. I'm convinced that as Satan stands before God daily, bringing accusations against God's children, much of what he is accusing us of is accurate. He calls us failures. Yep. We have failed. Innate in us is the ability to screw up when there is no possibility to screw up. That's called our sin nature. So as Satan accuses us before God, his whispers are accurate. They're just incomplete. Because he's forgetting grace. Grace is what we have as a result of what Jesus Christ did. You know what grace is? Look at chapter 3, verse 18. This is grace. Grace is this. Jesus Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God. That's grace. Jesus Christ suffered for sins once for all. Did you fail? Good. The payment has already been offered. Once for all. He brought his sacrifice. He substituted himself on your behalf. Your sin is covered. Past, present, future. Once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. It does not surprise him that you are a sinner. that he might bring you to God. Now, you say that with the wrong tone, and that sounds scary. It sounds like wait till your dad gets home kind of thing, doesn't it? So that he might bring you to God. I'm going to bring you to the principal's office. Usually doesn't end in lollipops. 
That's not what he's saying. Verse 10 of our text today of chapter 5. God of all grace who has called you where? To his eternal glory. He's going to bring you to God. I saw this a couple weeks ago and it has stuck with me. Too many of us live the life where the statement is, I screwed up, my dad's going to kill me. Instead of remembering that through Jesus Christ, the statement is, I screwed up, I got to call my dad. No matter the difficulty, no matter the hardship, no matter the frustration, no matter the, the failure, no matter the mourning of your soul when you fail, don't be so arrogant as to think that you are the single person in all time who can outsin the grace of God. It talks about the God of all grace. Who called you to his eternal glory. Catch this. This is important. It's the craziest one word in Greek, and yet it is significant. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself. He hasn't delegated it. God himself will restore you, establish you, strengthen you, support you. It is more than just hope. That's a statement of fact. This is what God's going to do himself. Do you feel like you need to be restored? Maybe through difficult times you've, you've failed. Maybe you've fallen victim to the roaring lion. Can I remind you of something that is oh so obvious and yet oh so forgotten? Look at who is writing this book. Have you ever heard of him? His name is Peter. I am convinced he is the one guy who's going to punch me in the throat when I get to heaven. Because, come on, Peter. Peter, being called by Jesus Christ, he's on the boat, and Jesus comes to him and says, cast your nets on the other side. And Peter says, no. We've been fishing all night. There ain't no fish over there. Jesus convinces him. Cast his net. And he catches a ton of fish. And he begins to follow Jesus. Jesus walking across the water, Peter sees him coming. Let me, let me get out of the boat. Let me walk on the water too. Let me come out to you. Let me come out to you. And Jesus says, come. And he steps out and he's like, I'm doing it. Sure is windy. Bloop. Jesus has to reach down, pick him up, put him back in the boat and say, man, you are such little faith. Why do you doubt so much? When Jesus explained to them that he was, it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and then he would be arrested and, and, and then he would be murdered and then he would rise again from the dead the third day, Peter was like, excuse me, Jesus, would you come here for a moment? I know you just told the guys you were going to die. That ain't happening on my watch. And Jesus said, yeah, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking God thoughts. Jesus offers to wash the feet of the disciples. They line up. He begins to scrub their feet, gets to Peter, and Peter's like, of course not. You will never wash my feet. You're Jesus. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then Peter's like, oh, okay, wash all of me then. And Jesus says, well, okay, the feet's enough. Thank you. <laughs> Peter, the one who was instructed to stay awake and pray, kept falling asleep. 
Peter, the one when the mobs came to arrest Jesus, pulled out a sword and swung, and cut off Malchus's ear. And Jesus rebuked him and said, again, you are not thinking God thoughts, Peter. Peter, the one who followed behind Jesus after he was arrested and brought to the house of Caiaphas. Standing out in the courtyard watching the proceedings. His servant sees him sitting there in the light, looks at him closely and says, wait, 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 wait. You're one of his disciples. He's like, no, no, I don't know Jesus. A little later, Somebody else says, that's a disciple. I know, he's been following Jesus. And he's, no, I'm not. And finally, this, after about an hour, another person just becomes super insistent that beyond a shadow of a doubt, this, in fact, is a disciple of Jesus Christ sitting in their midst. And Jesus, or sorry, Peter responds by cursing him, saying, I don't know the man. And just that moment, the rooster crows. Peter's forced not just to remember that Jesus said that you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. But we're also told that at that moment, the eyes of Jesus lock on with the eyes of Peter. And he leaves weeping uncontrollably. How is it possible that one who has spent so much time with Jesus would be just completely deny him, betray him as a friend, run from him, curse him? Complete failure. Until one day, three days later, after Jesus had been crucified, the ladies went to the tomb and found it to be empty. An angel appeared to the ladies and said, he's not here. The one you were looking for, he's risen. He's risen. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Mark chapter 16. Go tell the disciples and Peter. This failure, this one who's probably embarrassed beyond belief, sad, angry, in shock, hiding, gets a message. Peter, the angel spoke your name specifically. Peter, it's not over. You failed. But it's not over. You're still mine. And you're mine not because of your perfection. You're mine because of the resurrection. We praise God for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and the cross is just the beginning. We have this living hope that's more than just a hope. It's a forever settled victory. No matter what the lion roars about, Jesus lives, and so shall we. We, we are forever and fully forgiven because Jesus died once for all time. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not in our own good efforts. We stand before the throne of God the Father, adopted as one of his. This morning, as I think, we need to stop for a moment 
and examine our hearts and our lives. This being the week of Thanksgiving, we most certainly should offer our thanks to God for his grace and his mercy in our lives. Most of us in this room, if we're going to be completely honest, would say that we have landed the point of desperation at times, even times recently. And so Jesus, knowing that that was going to happen, left us instructions to remember. We do that through observing the Lord's Supper together. So this morning, we're going to remember Jesus and his death for you. We're going to remember Jesus and his promise for you to raise you up with him and to enjoy his presence at that great banquet where the food and drink will be a lot better than this. So I'm going to encourage you for the next few moments to quiet your heart before him in humble gratitude for his care for you. And then I'll come up and we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. They may not be perfect representations, and they're certainly not perfect rappers. But may this be a reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who willingly died for your sins, his broken body and his shed blood. Let's take communion.